Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a visit to the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. I think we've made a major contribution to Florida history and hopefully have inspired other ethnic groups to do the same. Teaching in Florida schools during the population explosion following World War II. He taught two classes at a time, and the classes averaged over 40 children. So he had around 80 students each 30 minutes of the day, except for one 30-minute period he had off. And we'll take a tour of the historic cemetery in Key West. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Conversos, Jews who publicly converted to Christianity under the threat of the Spanish Inquisition, probably came to Florida in the 1500s and continued practicing their religion secretly. Spanish records list people with Sephardic Jewish names among the first settlers of St. Augustine. Jewish people could not legally live in Florida until 1763, which is when Alexander Solomon, Joseph de Palacios, and Samuel Israel immigrated to Pensacola. This fascinating history and much more is preserved at the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. Long before the museum came into existence, founding executive director Marsha Jo Zervetz began a quest to collect and document Jewish history throughout Florida. I moved to Florida in 1960 and always been involved in the organized Jewish community and was rather horrified that there was no documentation of Jewish history in Florida. I couldn't understand that. I was involved nationally and everywhere I traveled I would meet with other women and we talked about why we were involved and they were involved because their mothers or their grandmothers or their aunts, somebody in the family had been involved and I'm thinking the Jews in Florida are really bereft of a history. There has to be something. We talk about Jewish continuity. How can you have continuity if you don't have a past? So I started asking a lot of questions because I tend to do that. And uh, to my horror, no one had ever researched or documented it at all. The scholars up east uh, considered Florida not important for Florida Jewish history. They assumed it began on Miami Beach after World War II, and that was the beginning and the end. So I said, no, 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 there's got to be more to it. So I actually started a fabulous personal adventure that I think has benefited the entire state, not just the Jewish community, but the totally multi-ethnic community that we have, because the story that we are telling is of the immigrant experience. And I think some people tend to forget that all of us are of immigrant stock of some generation. Someone came from another place to America and to Florida. So I started an eight-year adventure. 
I traveled around the state, starting with Pensacola to Key West, and a lot of people don't realize that's a 1,000 miles. We're a very long state. And I met with people in each community, volunteers, lay, lay people, and I said, we need to research and document the history, the Jewish history of your community. And people would constantly say, oh, there's no history here. And I said, well, whatever it is, we want to retrieve it. Saravitz organized teams of volunteers in 13 Jewish communities around the state, including Pensacola, Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa, Miami, and Key West. She learned how to conduct interviews from oral historian Samuel Proctor at the University of Florida. For eight years, Zarevitz and her team of volunteers collected stories, photographs, and artifacts. Zarevitz then assembled a team of professionals to help her create a touring exhibition called Mosaic, Jewish Life in Florida. After opening at the Historical Museum of Southern Florida in Miami in October 1990, the Mosaic exhibit traveled to venues including the Flagler Museum in St. Augustine, the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee, and the T.T. Wentworth Museum in Pensacola, introducing audiences to Florida's Jewish history. We did not even know at the time that Jews could not live in Florida for 250 years after Florida was discovered. Only Catholics could live here from the time Ponce de Leon discovered Florida in 1513 until after the French-Indian War when the Treaty of Paris was signed in Paris, France in November of, or December of 1762. That was when Florida was traded from the Spanish to the British, and the British, desperate for settlement, allowed anyone to settle, including Jews. So it so happens that that same treaty gave Louisiana, took it away from the French and gave it to the Spanish. So Jews who were living in New Orleans, for example, had to leave because Jews could not live anywhere in the world under Spanish rule. And three of them went to Pensacola, Florida in 1763. So that was the beginning of documented Jewish life in Florida. We also found out that Florida was brought into statehood in 1845, the 27th state, by David Levi-Uli, a Jew, the first person of Jewish ancestry to even serve in the United States Congress. But who knew? So we have had more than 250 Jewish mayors. In other words, we have contributed, we as a Jewish community, have contributed greatly to every area of development of Florida, but nobody knew the stories. So this exhibit became very popular. And people along the way would say, you know, you've been wandering Jews long enough. People knew, even non-Jewish people know the term wandering Jews. So they said, you need to find a permanent home. Obviously, everything that you've collected, and I had collected about 6,000 photos and documents and artifacts, wasn't everything. So they said, you need a home. In the mid-1990s, the Jewish Museum of Florida found a home in what had been Miami Beach's first synagogue in 1929 and an Orthodox synagogue next door built in 1936. Marsha Josarevitz led the restoration of the buildings in 1993. We're sitting now in a 1936 Art Deco designed by Henry Hohauser, the most prominent of the Art Deco architects, designed this building in 1936 as the second synagogue for the first Jewish congregation on Miami Beach that started in 1929 in the building which we now own next door. But we started in this primary building, the 80 stained glass windows, a Moorish copper dome, a sloping floor. Had a lot of challenges because how do you create a museum with a sloping floor and stained glass windows all over? But we were able to do it and uh, we opened, we raised the money. The building was about to be torn down, I should mention. The buildings are both on the National Register of Historic Places, but our city was letting them be torn down. So I went to the city immediately to get a moratorium against tearing them down. I said, give me six months to see if I can raise the money. So we did raise the money, 
and we restored this building and we opened in 1995 and were extremely successful in telling the story of the immigrant experience being focused on the Jewish story but the acculturation process of everyone's family. The exhibition Mosaic Jewish Life in Florida makes up the core of the Jewish Museum of Florida. A timeline at the front of the museum places Florida's Jewish history in a national and international context. Documents, photographs, and artifacts are displayed, including the watch belonging to George Delinsky of Jacksonville. Who is the first known Jewish boy born in Florida in 1857. Now, there are several reasons why I like that watch. First of all, on, on the back it has a, a raise, it has a relief of Moses holding the Ten Commandments. It's a beautiful artifact. And the, the numerals, the, the, the hours are in, in Yiddish, Hebrew letters, Hebrew Yiddish letters. But uh, the significance of the fact that the first known Jewish boy born in Florida was so proud of his Jewish heritage that he carried this watch his whole life, and that it speaks loudly to the fact that, yes, Jews were here that early. He wasn't the first child that we know of born in Florida. There was a Jewish girl born in Pensacola, you know, Virginia Myers, in 1822, but we don't have anything of her. We have a picture of George, and we have this artifact. And, of course, everything that we have here, and we now have over 100,000 items in our collection, but everything has a story, even how I got it. When I went to Jacksonville repeatedly to, um, to document the story of the Delinsky family, which, as far as I still know, after 25 years of doing this, is still the earliest known continuous Jewish family in Florida, the Delinsky family in Jacksonville. And I would talk to different members of the family because different people tell you different versions of the story, and you have to kind of put it all together and see what's the correct one. And when I met with one of the members of the family, she told me about this watch that she had locked away in a safety deposit vault in a bank that no one in the family knew about. So she, I was, was able to convince her to loan it to us first for the traveling exhibit, and then when we became a museum, to convince all these people to donate these things to the museum for our permanent collection. And of course, members of the family that continue to come here, we had one as recently as last week from Chicago, are so shocked that they never knew about this. Of course, they're very proud that now everybody knows the story, but uh, to, to think that this was in the family and they didn't know about, they're a bit miffed. While the mosaic exhibition is permanent, rotating displays exploring other themes of Jewish life in Florida change frequently. Marsha Josarevitz. We expand on those themes from the core. So one of those happens to be the military. So right now you will see in the center of the hall a fabulous, extensive exhibit on Florida Jews in the military that starts with the Seminole Wars in 1833. For example, Fort Myers, Florida is named for a Jew, Abraham Myers, who was a West Point graduate in 1833, was sent to Florida to fight in the Seminole Wars and did such a good job servicing the fort as a quartermaster that they named the fort for him and therefore the city became the city of Fort Myers. So of course it brings it up to the current days. In addition to collecting Jewish history in Florida, creating the Mosaic Exhibition, and establishing the Jewish Museum of Florida, Marsha Josarevitz is author of the book Jews of Greater Miami. She also co-wrote the Florida Jewish Heritage Trail, published by the Florida Department of State, which identifies 250 sites of historic significance. One of the criteria is that the state imposes is that the sites still have to be in existence. So that limited us a lot. I, my, say us, my co-author was Rachel Heimovics of Orlando. We had worked together when I lived in Orlando in many, on many projects. Um, I guess uh, if I have to think of a community that is just so interesting that people don't think about it, it's Ocala. 
because Ocala was, there were phosphate mines there in the early days. That's where troop trains for the Spanish-American War went through there to take troops to Tampa to sail to Cuba. Uh, there's so much early history there. And there was a really, proportionate to the size of the population, a very large Jewish community there. Uh, that We've had mayors, we've had school superintendents, uh, the houses of many of these people are still there. We had a state legislator, for example, Marcus Frank, who was on the city council for 40 years in Ocala, went on to become a legislator. Uh, we have, And those families still live in Florida today. As a matter of fact, to connect it, one of the descendants of one of those early Ocala families uh, was unfortunately one of those who was killed in uh, Iraq in the, in the current wars. So we come full cycle. The family has been in Florida for more than 100 years, and then to have a descendant killed in the Iraq War. Uh, but Ocala has a fascinating Jewish history, as does Pensacola, uh, as does Tallahassee and Jacksonville, all the, the northern uh, Jewish communities, uh, and Key West because Key West was an unblockaded port during the Civil War. And a lot of people forget that immigrants could come directly into Florida, into Jacksonville, and into Key West because they were ports. Uh, so many people think that everyone came through Ellis Island. Well, Ellis Island wasn't even in existence when many of these people were already coming to other ports in America. So um, I, I like to talk about the immigration uh, from specifically uh, Hush, Romania, that came into Key West, and from a place called Pushalatus, Lithuania, that came into Jacksonville. Very many, you know, it was called chain migration. One would come, for example, a big name in Miami is Wolfson. Uh, Mitchell Wolfson uh, created the first television station in the state, uh, the uh, Wometco Theaters, which is the Wolfson Meyer Theater Company, the Sequarium. Uh, he's the biggest f founder of Miami-Dade College, which, as I understand, has the largest endowment of any community college in the nation. Uh, his son was the first Jewish mayor of Miami Beach, which is also part of the military exhibit because he went to fight in World War II. Um, so the Wolfson family is an example of a family that came into Key West by 1884 because it was a shipwreck of one of the relatives. He ended up in Key West, and he went in and found a thriving Jewish community and said, hey, you know, to the rest of his family, this is a good place to live as a Jew. And, of course, that family eventually migrated up to Miami and has had a major impact here. And he married uh, Mitchell Wolfson, married someone from Pensacola whose grandfather had been the first Jewish judge in 1850, he was a federal judge in Florida. So here where you have emerging of a Pensacola and Key West family uh, that I just think is fascinating. And who would have known these stories if we hadn't done all this research with all these volunteer grassroots people all over the state? So I think we've made a major contribution to Florida history and hopefully have inspired other ethnic groups to do the same. With so many immigrants in our state, the Jewish Museum of Florida serves as an inspiration to everyone. The museum demonstrates the importance of documenting individual, family, and community histories. We have children in our public schools here in Miami-Dade County from 155 different nations. In Miami Beach High School alone, we have children from 64 countries that speak 31 languages. Huge challenge for teachers. But the point here is that, again, that everyone is an immigrant and that each person needs to have the pride of knowing that they're part of America and part of Florida, not to be treated as you know, a second-class citizen. The, the students 
that come here for field trips ranked us number one in the whole county as their favorite field trip because when they come here, they feel at home because we talk about the immigrant experience. And we do, we facilitate discussions with them about where did their families come from and why and what did they bring with them and what traditions did they bring that they had to acculturate to a new society. So, as again, it's, it's a generic story, and that's why I think it's so important. And as you can tell, I feel very passionate about what we do. Marcia Joserovitz is founding executive director of the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. When you become a member of the Florida Historical Society, you support this program, and you get our newsletter, The Society Report, and our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. To join the Florida Historical Society, just visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. Or you can call us at 321-690-1971, extension 205. That's myfloridahistory.org or 321-690-1971, extension 205. Must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself. Because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well, their father's hell. It slowly go by and feed them on your dreams. The one they picked, the one you know by. As Florida's population exploded after World War II, it was difficult for Florida schools to keep up. Janie Gould talks with a teacher from the period. Florida's population grew dramatically during the post-war baby boom. Schools struggled to keep up and recruited teachers from all over. Weta Wyatt and her late husband Jack moved from Tennessee to teach in Vero Beach in 1956. They rented a small apartment close to school. The elementary school and junior and senior highs were next to each other, just south of Vero's downtown. The Wyatts had two babies and one car. There was a grocery store, McClure's Drug Store, Birdwood's 10 Cent Store, and Amelie's Children's Store, and I could walk to all those places. Jack Wyatt's first job was teaching physical education at the elementary school. He taught two classes at a time, and the classes averaged over 40 children. So he had around 80 students, each 30 minutes of the day, except for one 30-minute period he had off. So the schools were definitely overcrowded. Unbelievable, really. I believe there were about 1,100 children in the first sixth grade. 
but she didn't have second thoughts about having moved to Florida. What I liked about it more than anything is the good weather here. I couldn't believe when wintertime came that diapers didn't freeze on the line. Jack and later Weta supplemented their salaries by driving a school bus. Some people will remember Dr. Garrett. He had a little boy who rode Jack's bus. Mrs. Garrett called one afternoon. She says, Jack, I don't know who else to call. My husband is in surgery. Jimmy hasn't come home from school. I don't have a car. I don't know what to do, and I think he's probably in the picture show. Could you possibly go down and check? Jack went down. Sure enough, he was right there, sound asleep, and so he picked him up and took him off. In the 1950s, girls often wore flouncy crinolines under their skirts, which made the hallways even more crowded. Weta Wyatt taught physical education at the time. Out in the locker room, it was so crowded with all those crinolines, because the girls had to wear a uniform for physical education, that I put eye bolts in the ceiling and ran wires and took clothespins to hang them up there and get them up over our heads without asking permission in order to be able to have room enough that I could see what was going on in the locker room. You had 7th graders through 12th graders in the locker room all the time. You could just barely squeeze around in there. That must have been a sight, 50 crinolines hanging up on a clothesline in the locker room. Well, it was. It's, it's funny to even think about, but it was also a sight in the halls where you had all these crinoline skirts and girls holding them in as they walked down the hall. Because it was crowded. It was unbelievable. At one time, it was so crowded that if you had a study hall and the weather was good, you just went out and sat on the ground outside. People were moving in like crazy. And every year they would have to search for teachers. Vero Beach was such a wonderful town. It was not like the small towns of Kentucky and Tennessee, where if your grandfather wasn't born there, you were an outsider. A lot of the stores in town gave teachers 10% discounts, including Amelie, because that's where I bought the first disposable diapers. 10% off tells you how badly they wanted teachers and wanted to keep them. Did pretty much all the stores do that? Well, most of the stores we traded at did. A generation earlier, Vero Schools provided a dormitory for single female teachers. It was known as the Teacherage. The late Catherine McClure, who moved to Vero from Georgia in 1926 and later became principal of the elementary school, told Weta Wyatt about it. There weren't any suitable places for young women to rent, and they had lots of very strict rules for young women and how they would behave themselves. The school system did? Yes. Catherine said that it was a great place to be, though, because there weren't very many single women, and there were lots of single men, so you had lots of gentlemen friends. But the teacher, she said, was a real experience. It was just a wooden building, and it was up on blocks. And she said everybody had chickens, so the roosters woke up every morning, and a lot of the chickens would go under the building, sometimes the armadillos, maybe a pig sometimes, and an occasional skunk. And it was on the school property? Yes. Was it rent-free living there? She didn't say. Times were good when they first came. Florida was booming in 1926, and it was booming in 1956 when we came. Weta Wyatt retired in 1988 after 32 years in teaching and administration. I'm Janie Gould. Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and This is Florida Frontiers. Sometime in the mid-19th century, cemeteries were moved out of churchyards and homesteads to become the landscaped, park-like places we know today. Florida has many old burial grounds, but none more fascinating than the historic cemetery of Key West. Bill Dudley takes us there. This is the uh, Mitchell family vault. It's uh, very unusual. 
features gable roofs and arches. And supposedly Russell Britton is sexton of one of the country's most unique cemeteries on the island of Key West. Today he's showing a small group around the 20-acre grounds located in the center of the island's old town. In addition to the unusual looking bricks... One of the first things you notice here is that space is in short supply. Large and small, shiny new granite side by side with crumbling stucco, the vaults and markers seem to crowd in on each other. The older northwest section is a jumble of graves above and below ground. Many are unmarked. Some seem half swallowed up by the grassy earth. Later, in his office in a small house near the entrance to the cemetery, Britton looks through faded paper records of burials dating back over 150 years. I spend about 40% of my time searching for grave sites in the cemetery. And you'd think, well, don't people know where their family's buried? And quite often, they don't. The cemetery was established after an 1846 hurricane that swept through Key West, at that time the largest, most prosperous town in the newly created state of Florida. George Bourne is executive director of the historic Florida Keys Foundation. After that storm, the contemporary accounts tell us that there were bodies scattered across the island and human remains lodged in trees. So not surprisingly, the city decided to relocate the cemetery, and they chose a spot which is very near the highest point in Key West, Solaris Hill. Now that's only 16 feet above sea level, so it's not much of a hill by any other standard but the Florida Keys, but it has been high enough to be uh, high and dry for the last 160 or so years. Crowded together here are the last resting places of Civil War heroes and Cuban revolutionaries. Judges, mayors, Florida's first millionaire, and a 108-year-old black Bahamian sailor. There are whimsical epitaphs, like that of a local hypochondriac, I told you I was sick. And there's the grave of Minnie Elizabeth Otto, whose epitaph reads, Her life was a beautiful morning. Older markers are carved with various coded symbols, such as an oak leaf for strength, an eye for divine vision, a pine cone for regeneration, and a rose for love. A cement outline in the grass may indicate the graves of several members of the same family, their coffins stacked one on top of another below ground. 1972 report indicated we had between 80 and 100,000, and we, since 1972 we've been burying at the rate of about 100 to 125 a year. So we have a whole bunch here in a cemetery that was built for 30000 The thing that makes us unique is we don't have any more room. We don't have any more real estate, so we keep adding people there. Since it's filled up, they've started stacking people on top. Monroe County historian Tom Hambright. QS was always a multicultural city. Some of the first founders were New Englanders that came here from Mystic River Valley. And the, the Bahamians, who had been American loyalists, had resettled to the Bahamas, came in. And later, of course, we had the uh, Hispanic influence from Cuba coming in here. And being a major port, we find people from almost all nationalities landing on shore here at one time or the other. And Key West was the only southern city that remained in the Union throughout the Civil War. You had a lot of African refugees from Florida and the other places in the south that ended up in Key West, so added to the mixing pot here. Burial practices reflect the values of these many different groups. Some of the dead are above ground, some below. Some want to remain anonymous. I have been told by old conks, old locals, that some of the old folks did not want people to know where they're buried. They don't put a headstone on them. Some folks couldn't afford a headstone, 
or they intended to put one, and they just, over time, just never got around to it. At one time, stones were pretty much a luxury throughout this country. You know, the wealthier class people would have stones, so the poor people would have crosses of wood or something on their grave. And, of course, in this climate, that's not a permanent marker. Surprisingly, Britton and his colleagues are often successful in finding lost people. Recently, the grave of a black sheriff's deputy killed in the line of duty over a century ago was located after a long search. For historians, Key West Cemetery provides a cross-reference for their own research. You can read about somebody's life in town, but then you can also go to the cemetery and find out where they're buried and uh, maybe some of the particulars about their death. It just adds another layer to the other historical sources of information out there. We have so much history here. Given that we are a port city and people have come and have gone, it's amazing how many we still have here. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. Thank you.